This podcast is supported by Understood Explains. As parents, we are often having to figure out things as we go, and that is very true for our children's education. And to help you out, I want to tell you about a podcast called Understood Explains. This season is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Ortube, and she discusses all the things you'd want to know about individual education plans, or IEPs, what they are, why they're needed, who benefits from them, and what to expect when you have meetings with teachers. I could have really used this podcast when my son had an IEP for speech when he was six. I was overwhelmed trying to understand the process and what everything meant. The episode on Understood Explains, Does My Child Need an IEP?, was the kind of info that would have really helped me get the most out of the educational support of the IEP for my son. And if you need that kind of support, I really recommend this podcast. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm perinatal psychologist and host, Dr. Kat. There's more to the story than just postpartum depression, and this podcast aims to share it all. From personal stories and lived experience to experts who break down the ups and downs of life from getting pregnant, pregnancy, perinatal loss, and postpartum adjustment to parenthood. While this is not psychotherapy or medical advice, it is all of the stuff you ever wanted to know about mental health and new parenthood. Welcome to Mom and Mind. I'm your host, Dr. Kat. On our episode today, we are hearing from Emily Collins. She is a young millennial woman navigating life in the Midwest with bipolar one. She shares with us what it's like to navigate life as a mother and professional living with mental illness, very specifically what it was like to have to make decisions about things like medication during pregnancy and postpartum. She also talks about having a high-risk pregnancy, emergency C-section, and a premature infant who had to spend eight weeks in the neonatal intensive care unit, and how all of these experiences impacted her mental health and how she was able to heal and cope over time. Emily is married to her college sweetheart, and together they have three children ages nine, six, and four. Emily is a pre-kindergarten teacher, and she also has an Instagram account called Lattes and Lithium that focuses on her life with bipolar disorder. Let's meet Emily. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much for being on with us. And I really appreciate that you wanted to come on and share your story. I know it's one that a lot of other moms need to hear and, and need to know that they're not alone. And I know it can be, you know, difficult sometimes to share these types of things about ourselves, but maybe as you've recognized in your journey, it helps to know, you know, that you're not alone. Yes. So please do start wherever you'd like with your story. Okay, I will do that. So one of the reasons that I am talking on this podcast today is because I have bipolar disorder, which you may have heard referred to as manic depression. So there are three different types of bipolar and I have what's called axis one bipolar. This means that my moods can fluctuate between severe depression to hypomania and then to full-blown mania. So bipolar has been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. My freshman year in high school was really the first time that it became evident that something was wrong. So if I look back on this period in my life when I was only 15, I can see that this was really the first time that I experienced depression. I had a really rough adjustment to high school. My school was very small. 
it was a very close-knit private school. And I remember feeling so out of place, like I couldn't relate to anyone. I didn't have any friends, which really didn't bother me as the depression kind of took hold. And I was just super irritable, which is also a big symptom of bipolar and then a bipolar mood episode. So I was a distance runner in high school. And that was the only thing I really cared about. And a a part of being bipolar and also just part of my personality is I have a tendency to take things to the extreme. I am intense by nature. So when it came to running cross country, I was all in. It was the only thing that mattered. And at the time, I was just so irritable and so unhappy that I needed a way to try and feel as though I had some control over these emotions that I didn't really have a word for yet. So I developed anorexia. So this was back in the early 2000s when attitudes towards body image was much different back then than it is now. And I had the mentality, the thinner I was, the faster I would run, Mm -hmm. which of course is not something that's true. I knew all the tricks of the trade to avoid eating. And then from my freshman year to around the end of my sophomore year, so about a year, was when my eating disorder was at its worst. I lost about 30 pounds and soon it became obvious to my parents and my coach that I wasn't eating and that there was something that was seriously wrong. So my parents took me to see a psychiatrist where I was diagnosed with generalized anxiety and then I was prescribed an SSRI, which I took throughout high school, but never really um, made a big difference in my mental health. And so it was- There was no benefit for you? No, not at the time. Yeah, not at the time. Okay. But I was able to recover mostly because I wasn't allowed to run until I kind of gained the weight back. So by my junior year, I was more or less recovered, even though I had some small relapses throughout the rest of high school and college. I went out of state for college. And it was at this time when I was in my early 20s that bipolar really took hold and began to have a really significant impact on my life. So much of how I behaved and the things I did in college can only be understood if you understand how hypomania works. When someone is hypomanic, their ideas come very fast and their mood can swing from very elevated and excitable to really intensely and irritable. And that was my normal throughout most of college. And in some ways, hypomania is a superpower because all of the excess energy heightens your natural talents and gives you the ability to have laser focus on whatever it is you are passionate about or invested in. So in many ways, I was very successful as a college student. I was involved in a variety of extracurricular activities and had numerous leadership roles, including forming an eating disorder awareness club called One in Four that I started in my dorm room as a freshman. Can I ask a a question real quick? So at this point, is this you like reflecting that you understood at that time you were dealing with hypomania or at that time, did you, I think it was just anxiety, I guess. Yeah, I thought it was totally normal. I didn't really have the insight to realize that something was wrong. I just kind of thought that it was just regular anxiety and it was just kind of how things were for me at the time. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. So on one hand, I was this very high achieving, hardworking, ambitious young woman, but because hypomania is a symptom of bipolar. And at the time I didn't know I was bipolar. I was still um, a very sick young woman. So I had this routine that I would do on the weekends is I would find this very tight fitting mini dress or a halter top that was usually black. 
And I would have my roommates kind of tease my hair and put on this heavy eye makeup and lipstick. And then I would take five shots of tequila back to back to back. So by the time I left my apartment, I was already pretty drunk. And then my friends and I would find a party in our student neighborhood where we would continue to drink, even though we were underage at the time. And my mission was to always find a guy, usually someone who was as drunk as I was. And then I would leave with him and go back to his room and sleep with him. And it's easy to look at this time in my life and see how reckless I was. I was underage. I was usually drunk. I would be leaving my friends. But when you're hypomanic, the need to seduce someone or be seduced is overwhelming. Hypersexuality is a part of bipolar that isn't talked about often. Mm -hmm. But for me, when I'm manic or hypomanic, that's my primary symptom. So the desire to be out and to be with someone is very overwhelming and is hard to control. For you, that was your, you said that was your primary symptom that fell into the category of reckless behavior for you. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, got it. So that was the drinking and the, uh, you said hypersexuality or hypersexual nature. Yeah. Right. So that was yours uh, specifically. It can be a part of it for a lot of people, but not yes. necessarily the primary for everyone. Yeah. But I do appreciate you bringing that in because anything that's related to sex and sexuality, and especially as it relates to mental health, you're absolutely right. Not enough people talk about it. Um, and especially because you're, you know, now what was going on, but at the time, mm-hmm. as you described, it felt, it felt just like you're normal. Yeah, absolutely. And nothing occurred to you or maybe even people around you because college is like, you can, yeah. a lot of stuff gets hidden in college because yeah, people true. are doing a lot of stuff. So yeah, I, I thank you for highlighting that part of your experience. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, and that just kind of shows what being bipolar is like. 
mm-hmm. because that's something that on a regular day I would never do. It's so not my nature. Mm-hmm. So it kind of shows how the bipolar thinking really changes your personality mm-hmm. and change who you are. But fortunately for me, I met my husband my sophomore year of college, so or my future husband. So that kind of put an end to that risky behavior. So I knew right off the bat that I was going to marry him. So we got married during college and I um, actually switched my major on a whim my junior year. I took a class about psychology of women and then just decided to become a women's studies major kind of at the drop of a hat, even though that didn't have anything to do with what I wanted to do with my life. I just kind of got caught up in the passion of that. But even still, I was able to get a good job after I graduated college. We were married at the time, but my husband, Corey, and I lived long distance during this time period. And so the stress of starting, of graduating college and being on my own and starting my first real kind of grown-up job was enough to kind of push me into full-blown mania. So about a month into my first job, I remember sitting on the floor of my apartment and calling Corey because I couldn't remember how to turn on my computer. My thoughts were moving so quickly and so fast that I couldn't like kind of grab onto a thought long enough to think it through. I was out of control. I wasn't sleeping. I was definitely spiraling. So I had the idea. I don't remember it very well, but I drove myself to the emergency room. And I remember just telling them that something wasn't right and I couldn't do it anymore. And I still thought at the time that it was just anxiety. And then if I started taking my anxiety medication again, that I would feel better. But I'm sure I was quite the sight. I'm sure the ER nurses could tell pretty quickly that this wasn't just anxiety, that there was something more going on. So I was given a Xanax and sent home and with the advice to follow up with a psychiatrist. So I did see a psychiatrist and he pretty shortly after I began telling him how I was feeling, he diagnosed me with Axis 1 bipolar disorder. He prescribed me lithium, which is kind of known as the wonder drug for treatment of mania, but it actually didn't do anything to me. It was a long road to find the right medication for me. But I eventually started taking um, a drug called Lamictal. Kind of interesting. It's actually an anticonvulsant, and it was created to treat epilepsy. But it did it does show to have a very positive effect on the treatment of bipolar. So taking this medication kind of calmed everything down. I finally started to feel like myself again, and it had been a long time since I felt kind of grounded and normal again. And I think part of having a significant mental illness that isn't talked about. It's kind of the grief that comes with learning that you have an illness that's incurable. And even though bipolar can be treated with medication in certain lifestyle changes, it's ultimately an incurable illness that will be a part of my life forever. Like I'll be in my 80s with grandkids and I'll still be driving to the pharmacy to get my medication. So it's just kind of knowing that it's a part of your life forever is kind of a hard, like literally a hard pill to swallow. And then knowing that looking back over the years when before I was diagnosed, before I knew kind of what was going on, the way I conducted myself and how I treated others, it's just hard to know that I wouldn't have behaved that way if I had the proper medication and was under the care of a doctor. So it's just kind of hard to kind of wrap your head around being bipolar. But fortunately, with the support of my husband and my new psychiatrist, And I also began to see a therapist again. During college, I didn't see a therapist or a a psychiatrist. Um, So when I kind of started seeing, started building a care team and having a care team in place to help me kind of stay grounded, my life kind of improved a lot and things kind of got back to normal. 
So it was shortly after I moved to live with my husband. A few months later, we decided that we were going to try to start our family. And one of the biggest decisions I had to make off the bat was whether or not I should take my medication during pregnancy. So I know every medication and every mom is different. And this is definitely something that should be talked about with your doctor. So I don't want to give any advice, but just to share my own personal story, I knew that There was no way I could go nine months without taking any medication for me. I knew that I would get very sick very quickly and it would likely be harmful to the baby. So after consulting with my psychiatrist and my OB, I decided that I would continue to take my medicine throughout my pregnancy. And so with my particular medicine, there was a risk that the baby would develop a cleft palate. That was kind of the one warning that we had gotten about taking this medicine during pregnancy. So at my 20-week ultrasound with all three of my kids, I went to a high-risk pregnancy specialist to have a more detailed ultrasound that focused on the baby's palate. But thankfully for all three of my pregnancies, that that wasn't an issue for me. So I was able to stay on my medicine without any side effects for my babies. So I had my oldest daughter in 2013 and then my son in 2016. And everything considered, my first two pregnancies were very easy. Aside from a little morning sickness here or there, their pregnancies and their their deliveries were a breeze Mm -hmm. or as much labor can be easy. (laughs) It was in 2018, I got pregnant with my youngest son. And my pregnancy was a challenge kind of right from the get-go. When I was 11 weeks pregnant, I was laying on my couch talking to my mom on the phone when I felt this popping sensation followed by this gushing feeling. I went to the bathroom and there was blood all over my pants and underwear. And so I drove to labor and delivery, um, assuming that I was having a miscarriage. And I was kind of bracing myself to say goodbye to my baby. But when the OB on call did the ultrasound, the baby was totally fine. Mm -hmm. We could see the heartbeat and the baby squirming around in the ultrasound. So they kind of just chalked it up to normal first trimester bleeding. And I was sent home. Then about seven weeks later, when I was 18 weeks pregnant, I woke up in the middle of the night to find that I had started bleeding all over my bed and underwear again. So again, I thought I was having a miscarriage. But when I went to triage at the hospital, the baby still had a heartbeat and there didn't seem to be an imminent emergency. But just as a precaution, because I was still bleeding, I was hospitalized in the antepartum ward of our hospital. And the next day I saw a maternal fetal medicine doctor, which is a doctor that handles high-risk pregnancies for an ultrasound. It was then that they discovered that I had what is called a subchorionic hematoma, which is basically a large blood clot. Mm -hmm. So the doctor determined that the blood clot was causing the bleeding. So a few days later, I was released and put on what's called modified bed rest, which basically means no heavy exertion and no heavy lifting. But at the time, I had a five-year-old and a two-year-old, so it was very hard um, not to lift my two-year-old and do things like put him in his car seat and things like that. A few days later, after I was released, I was hospitalized again. I was making spaghetti sauce, and all of a sudden, I had this terrible pain come over me. I was double overed in pain. I threw up from the pain. So again, we rushed to antepartum thinking I was having a miscarriage again. But once again, the baby was totally fine. I spent the night in antepartum again, but the OB concluded that it was probably just excess bleeding on the uterus that was causing the pain. So three weeks later, when I was about 20 we- 21 weeks pregnant, right before Christmas, my pregnancy took a turn for the worse and the situation became a lot more dire. 
So once again, um, following kind of my pattern that I had in this pregnancy, I woke up in the middle of the night with heavy bleeding. So again, I drove through the cold and the dark to the antepartum wing of the hospital. Once it was determined that the baby was still alive, I was admitted to antepartum so I could see the MFM the next day. And when I had an ultrasound with the high-risk doctor, we learned that the hematoma was actually bigger than the baby, and it was slowly causing my placenta to detach. We were given a 50% chance of making it to 23 weeks, which is considered the age of viability. How far along uh, were you at that point? I was 21 weeks. So we were two weeks shy of um, reaching viability. Okay. So I was put on bed rest for the remainder of my pregnancy. I spent about a week in the hospital. But when I was sent home, I was put on bed rest for the rest of my pregnancy. I was teaching at the time and I ended up having to leave my job. It was my first year teaching at that school. So I didn't qualify for FMLA. So I had to leave my job to go on bed rest. And we would later learn my MFM actually when my son was in the NICU, he came and visited us and he told us that he fully expected me to deliver at 21 weeks at which point the baby would have no chance of survival. So this is all like, even up to this point, this is, I, by my estimation, pretty intense stuff. Yes. Um, like, so this is every several weeks or so you're having to deal with this. Oh my gosh, is my, is my baby going to make it? Am I like, why am I bleeding? And that is a lot, a lot to have to, to wonder and worry about. So like, but where, I guess, how, how can I ask it? Like, were you just feeling anxious the whole time. Yeah. I think the hardest part was there was nothing anyone could do to help the baby. I could be on bed rest, but that mm-hmm. wasn't a guarantee that the baby would make it to viability. And with our condition, um, there was nothing the doctors could do either. It was just kind of a cross your fingers and hope for the best. So it was kind of just a waiting game to see how long I could stay pregnant. So were you in pain the whole time as well? No, actually, it was only kind of that one day that I had pain. At this point in my pregnancy, it was just kind of the sporadic bleeding. I was in pain. Okay, okay. All right, so now uh, back to the 21 weeks. What happened? The MFM told you that there's a 50% chance? Is that what you said? Yes, of making it to viability, yes. Mm. So bed rest definitely was not as glamorous as it sounds. Like I said, we had a five-year-old and a two-year-old at the time. Right. And my had to do 95% of the parenting on top of his job, Mm -hmm. on top of like caring for the house and grocery shopping and giving baths and all that stuff. Um, So just sitting on the couch was definitely a lot harder than it may seem. And then when I was 29 weeks and five days, I was sitting on my couch and it was right before Valentine's Day. And I was writing Valentine's for my students. And I ended up falling asleep on the couch. And I woke up a few hours later to this really intense pain in kind of the upper right corner of my back. And I kind of had that maternal instinct that something was wrong. It was just too random of a pain to not be something enough that it woke me up. So I went upstairs, I woke up my husband, I had him kind of press on my back where it was hurting. And I called, I didn't know what was happening, but I called the OB on call at the kind of the after hours OB. And she said to drink a bottle of water and then to try to go back to sleep. And if the pain didn't go away, then I should go to the ER. So I did that. I drank the water, but the pain didn't go away. So I ended up going back to antepartum. At this point, I had started having contractions. They hooked me up to a monitor to kind of trace the contractions, but they weren't coming consistently. 
and I wasn't bleeding at the time. So they went ahead and just released me and sent me home. But later on that day is when I started to bleed again. And so we went back to the hospital. I was admitted to anapartum again. And then two days later, I um, had an ultrasound with our MFM again. And that showed that I had what was called a partial placental abruption. And that means that basically the placenta was detaching even more. There was an enormous hematoma was still present. I was having contractions sporadically. And then my son had blood in his lungs at that point. And so I will never forget the doctor kind of looked me in the eye and he said, at some point, something is going to happen to your baby. And one of you is going to start feeling it. And you are going to stay in the hospital until it happens. Meaning at some point, the placenta was going to detach and either I would feel the pain or my baby would basically, he wouldn't be able to breathe. And so we would have to be rushed into a C-section and I was going to stay in a hospital bed rest in the hospital until that happened. So later on that night, a nurse practitioner from the NICU came to my hospital room and kind of let me know what I could expect if a baby was born at 30 weeks, but nothing she said really registered to me. I was more focused on the fact that I could be in the hospital for another 10 weeks. So I didn't really register to me how much danger we were in at the time, mm-hmm. um, both me and my son. But the next morning on Valentine's Day, um, the bleeding started to increase. I was soaking a pad every 15 minutes. And then very quickly, I started to hemorrhage. And I was told that um, my son Nicholas was going to be born right now. So we were rushed to the OR and I was bleeding like a horror movie. And um, my husband was kicked out when they kind of prepped me and got me ready for the C-section. I just remember all the bright lights and everyone was hurrying and I remember the pressure of feeling of the doctor kind of pushing and pulling when the baby was being born. And then at some point, I heard this puny little cry. And we were actually very fortunate that he cried when he was born. But he was immediately handed over to the NICU staff. I actually didn't get to hold him until later that night. Um, So he was immediately handed to the NICU team. But I remember them telling me that he was doing great for his age. He was actually four pounds. So even at 30 weeks, he was still a pretty good baby or he would have been good sized if he stayed full term. So I remember my husband crying and I asked him if he was little. And the very first time I saw Nicholas was when he was being wheeled past me on his way to the NICU. So I didn't get to see him until later on in the day. I was wheeled. I went to the recovery room for my C-section. And then it was later on that day that I was pushed up to the NICU by a nurse and I was able to hold him for the first time that evening. So this kind of emergency stuff always happens so quickly. And yes. it's really hard to even understand sometimes all of what's happening, let alone remember what they're telling you. And uh, because there's just so much going on. And at this point, well, I mean, I guess throughout your pregnancy and up to this point was, if I can ask, how was your the bipolar diagnosis how was it manifesting if at all the biggest during my pregnancy i didn't really have any issues mm-hmm. um i had the anxiety of kind of wondering what would happen and how long could i stay pregnant when was i going to start bleeding again but most of my problems took place when he was born okay. almost immediately i went into hypomania i began to kind of hyperfixate on the nicu like i talked about before i have a tendency to kind of hone in on something and it kind of becomes my world and that's what the nicu was for me i would get up at 5 in the morning and drive to the nicu to hold him in the morning and then i would go back home around 6:30 so i could take my kids to school And then after I dropped my kids off, I would go back to the NICU and I would hold him all day. 
until dinner time. And I would go home and put my kids to bed and then go back to the NICU. So I was spending hours of my day at the NICU, just trying to be with him and be near him. At first, there was very little I could do to care for him. He was on oxygen for about the first week of his life. And then he had a feeding tube. Babies born at 30 weeks aren't developed enough to know how to suck and swallow. So he was fed through um, a feeding tube for several weeks. So at first, the only thing I could really do for him was just to hold him and change his diaper. So there was very little I could do for him. And kind of knowing that you're kind of helpless, there's nothing you could kind of like during my pregnancy, Mm -hmm. I was completely at the mercy of other of strangers really to kind of save my baby's life and care for him when he was in the NICU. So it's a very helpless feeling. Can yeah. I ask too, how, like what happened to you during this time? Like the hematoma resolve or like did they have to, what happened? All of the hematoma kind of came out when they delivered the baby. So my recovery was probably pretty standard for a C-section. Yeah. So physically I was fine as soon as the baby was born. And Nicholas, my son was fine too. He was what's called a feeder and a grower where basically he was totally fine. As soon as he was born, he was totally fine. He was healthy for his age. Also throughout my pregnancy, I received a series of shots to help with his lung development, just because we're at such a high risk of having him prematurely that one of the reasons he was so healthy was probably because I was being so closely monitored throughout my pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So he just basically had to be in the NICU until he could learn how to um, drink from a bottle on his own. Sure. Okay. So then the, you said that like hyperfixation, what was happening for you? What did it feel like for you? Like internally? Well, I definitely would ruminate on the NICU. I would think about even after my son came home, he was in the NICU for eight weeks, but once we brought him home, um, it was all I could think about. I got pretty involved with volunteering at the hospital, kind of when you're hypomanic, at least in my experience, you're, I was very creative and I have a lot of ideas when I'm hypomanic. So I wrote several articles that were published. I got an internship through the March of Dimes where I went to Washington, D.C. and kind of advocated for premature babies. So I was doing a lot, but it was all at an unhealthy level. Mm. And about, I was hypomanic for about a year. And just as a side note, I think this is something that a lot of people don't understand about bipolar mm-hmm. is that mood swings is kind of isn't really a good explanation for what you experience because my mood swings last for months on end. It's not like I'm happy one minute and I'm sad the next. My mood episodes last for months. And so I hypomanic for about a year. And then I fell into a really severe depression that lasted for about three months. And that was also my first time experiencing psychosis before. I would hear kind of strange, but I would hear my sister's voice talking to me, even though she obviously wasn't there. But that was my first time experiencing psychosis before. Can I ask you real quick again? Yeah. What, what is the timeline there that you said um, hypomanic for about a year and then depression and in the depression, you had the psychosis or in the hypomania? In depression. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was- no. Yeah. I'm just clarifying for myself. And in terms of the hypo, were you meeting with a psychiatrist? Were they? So I was meeting with a psychiatrist. The kind of the funny way that bipolar works is I didn't think I was sick. I just thought I was very passionate. I thought I had found kind of my calling in life mm-hmm. to help premature babies. I didn't have, even though I knew I was bipolar, I didn't have the insight to realize that my obsession with the NICU was unhealthy. I just thought I was passionate and wanted to get involved with the NICU. So when I saw my psychiatrist, I didn't tell him that anything was wrong. 
I thought I was fine. I thought I was happy and upbeat. It's kind of funny how that works that you don't really realize that your reality has shifted. And it wasn't when I fell into the depression, my doctor increased my medicine a lot. So that kind of brought me out of the depression, but I went right right back to being hypomanic again for about another year. And then about a year and a half ago is when I experienced my second major manic episode, which is again, mania. It's different from hypomania because for me, it means psychosis. It gets to the point where all the creativity and the energy you feel when you're hypomanic becomes too much and you can't think and the thoughts go too fast and you're reckless and out of control. And so I actually ended up having to go to a facility in Chicago. I was teaching at the time. I had three kids and we were trying to figure out the medicine that I needed to kind of put an end to the mania. And so in a year time frame, I tried six different medications. And so, so I went to this facility to kind of sort out my medication in a way that where I was away from the stress of teaching in my kids and yeah, things like yeah. that. And so that's where we finally found the right medication for me that kind of finally, almost four years after my son was born, we finally found the, a way to kind of get me back to normal and get me back to feeling like myself. So I think for me, people who are bipolar are highly susceptible to trauma. And the fact is that 53% of mothers with babies in the NICU develop post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of having a child in the NICU. So I think the trauma of how Nicholas was delivered in the first few days of his life, right. it was enough to really set off this episode that lasted for years. He right. was almost four by the time I finally felt like myself and before this postpartum period finally ended. So it took really years and lots of trial and error and patience yeah. to he went back to feeling like I did before he was born. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Wow. So you said during the pregnancy with him, you felt fine. 
Yes, totally fine. Aside from, you know, whatever, kind of some some quote unquote normal pregnancy stuff. Yes. And then so sharply right after, I mean, obviously the whole birth experience, as you described, was traumatizing for you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I guess looking back on that period of time, do you, it's, it would be hard to, to filter out, let's say what caused what, I mean, the the trauma obviously was a major cat the high stress, like the highest kind of stress as a major contributor. And then the, the birth and the NICU, and you're also trying to cope with a medical condition of, of bipolar one, but it just all happens kind of at the same time. Yes. And it all impacts each other. Yes. So to to speak, like, how do you, how the, it sounds like the hypomania impacted how you were in the NICU and the NICU kind of kept uh, having to deal with that high stress kind of kept you in a hypomanic state. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's really, like you said, very hard to notice for yourself that you're going through it. And it sounds obviously like, you know, the doctor didn't quite pick up on it. But it made me wonder if anybody around you had any concerns or noticed anything that they were worried about. I think my husband, I've been with him for 14 years. So he's really good at picking up on if I'm struggling or if my mood kind of starts to shift. So I think he knew that I was overly involved in the NICU, that I couldn't kind of move past his birth, that even when he was a year, one year old, two year old, three year old, my mind was still back on his birth and how he was born in the NICU. So I think he realized that something was wrong. And then definitely when I was going through my depression, actually kind of as a side note, part of the psychosis I experienced during my depression is I became super paranoid. And so I became convinced that my husband cheated on me, which he would never, he would never do. But I was convinced that he had, I would go through his room trying to find proof that he had cheated on me. And I actually made him go to family therapy because I was so convinced that something had happened. So I put him kind of through a lot during the depression. And then during the mania, he would talk to my therapist a lot and talk to my doctor and they would work together to kind of come up with the treatment plan to help me. And he would kind of make sure I was taking my medicine. He would encourage me to go to keep my therapy appointments when I didn't feel like talking. So, and then he was also encouraging me to go to the facility in Chicago just knowing that, you know, enough was enough. I had struggled for years and I needed to get a hold on this so that I could kind of live a happy life and just be happy. So I think he's definitely very in tune to when I'm struggling. So I think pretty soon after my, that was kind of a long way of saying that, um, yes, he was in tune that things were not right almost as soon as my son was born. Right. Sure. I mean, it's so hard to know too, like what to attend to. I mean, you're still, you still need to recover just from the birth. But um, going also being in the NICU and being there is super important also. And it, there's like no time for you to rest, right. let alone, I guess, sleep. Like what, what was well, happening? Yeah, it's hard because when I had my son in the NICU, but I had two older kids who still needed me. Mm-hmm. And I had to decide, you know, should I be home with them to tuck them in tonight? Or should I be with my son in the NICU? And things like, you know, going to the grocery store or taking a shower, that was keeping me away from my son, um, knowing that he was there alone. Like, And I remember for two months, I slept with my cell phone on my pillow with me, just waiting for the call that, you know, the worst had happened and mm-hmm. that my son was alone when that happened. 
you know, he's when he woke up at night, he wouldn't see me. He, I wouldn't be there for him. And so knowing that you had to choose between taking care of your kids and living life or being with your son in the NICU, it's hard because you can't be two places at once. So kind of having to pick and choose kind of where, who, what kid you would be with at the time was definitely a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, you said about four years of, if I can say suffering, I don't know if that would be your word. Yeah. Does that fit? Yeah, definitely at times. I would definitely say that would fit. Sure. So after you got the medication that you feel finally helped, I guess, how did one, I guess, two part question, how did that impact you moving forward? And then also what was it like to feel okay and then look back on what had happened over the last four years? So I think taking the medicine kind of made me aware of how unhealthy my actions were. I had done a lot of good through volunteering and things like that, but ultimately they hypomania is a symptom that something wasn't right, that I was still sick. And then definitely the major mood episodes were kind of proof that things weren't right. Feeling better is definitely kind of realizing that it had been years since I felt like myself. And mm -hmm. for the majority of that time, I didn't even know that something was wrong with me. Right. So kind of, kind of the way bipolar kind of changes your reality. Mm -hmm. um, just knowing that, I don't know, I'm sorry, I keep having mind blanks. I think it's just kind of unnerving when you realize that you were sick for so long and you didn't realize it. And then the actions you were taking weren't necessarily coming from a place of health. Um, I think that's hard to kind of know that for four years I was sick and that I lost so much time just living life and being happy. It's hard to kind of know that just you lost years of your life in a way to this illness that you weren't, weren't even really totally aware that you had, if that right. makes sense. Oh, yeah, for sure. That makes total sense. Yeah, I imagine there's like a bit of, I don't know, I guess just from my therapist brain, I'm thinking mm -hmm. kind of like a grieving almost. Of yeah, absolutely. That like time, not lost, but that you didn't have it the way you wanted to have it. Yeah, absolutely. So what about your experience would you like people to understand in terms of having a, a bipolar one diagnosis and being in the postpartum period? Well, I think at least when it comes to the NICU, Something I struggled with a lot throughout, um, not just in the immediate days after my son was born and then the years that followed, is I had a hard time handling the guilt of my son being born so early, kind of knowing that I couldn't stay pregnant any longer and that I kind of blamed myself for that, mm -hmm. even though it obviously wasn't anything, anything that I could control. So I think that's something other NICU moms I've met before struggle with as well. Yeah. Um, I just remember the first time I felt this guilt was the day he was born when I was in the postpartum wing, I could hear other healthy babies crying through the walls and then knowing that their moms were right there to care for them. But my son was by himself on the first day of his life. He was all alone in the NICU by himself. And I wasn't there when he would wake up. And then when, during his time in the NICU, knowing that I wasn't always there to change his diaper, I wasn't there the first time he drank from a bottle, just knowing that you miss out on things like that when your yeah. kids are in you. Yeah. But so I think it's important that women understand that it's not your fault, that sometimes these things just happen. And just knowing that, yeah, I think it's just important that we remember that sometimes these things happen. Complications come up during your pregnancy. Babies are born early and there's nothing even, I mean, the NICU has babies that are born full term, but just something could happen that they need extra help in the NICU. 
So I think it's important that moms remember that you're going through so much in the NICU. You're, the whole experience is traumatizing and you're dealing with so many emotions, all the postpartum hormones on top of the trauma of the right. NICU, on top of having to leave your child behind in the hospital every night. So for 53 days, I would walk out the door without my son. So just dealing with that guilt is the last thing you need to feel because you already have so much on your plate. I would advise women just to try to not to struggle so much with your guilt because you already have so much on your plate. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. A hundred percent. It's right. Nobody chooses this. Right. And you wouldn't wish for anybody else to experience it. And But when you're in it, yeah, that is a tough one. The guilt to relieve yourself of that. You're working so hard, especially like what you're describing. You're working so hard and um, everything else kind of falls to the wayside, like your own whatever you need to do for yeah. yourself is like yeah. barely there, uh, except like the most fundamental stuff sometimes. Yes. And in your case, especially too, when you have, you have kids at home and you're, like you said, trying to divide your time. It's in some ways it's like no choice feels great. Like you're just trying to make the best decision you yeah. can at any given you're time. In survival. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you offering that to everyone to relieve themselves of that guilt. It's real for sure. And how about for other moms who have, let's say, a known bipolar diagnosis when they're, what would you like for them to know about, you know, the experience or learn, I guess, maybe from yours? Well, I would say that even if you are bipolar, you can still be a wonderful mother. I know there was times before we had kids that I would ask myself, you know, can I handle having a baby? What happens if I pass bipolar is highly genetic. So what happens if I pass bipolar onto my kids? But all those fears kind of went away as soon as my kids were born. Just knowing that even though I'm bipolar, even though I take medicine, I'm still a great mom. I'll live a wonderful life and my kids are loved. They come from a loving home and they know they know that nothing they could do would ever make me, no matter what I'm going through, if I'm manic, if I'm depressed, nothing could ever stop me from loving them. So I think it's important that even if you have an illness like bipolar, you can still live a full, fulfilling life and you can still be a wonderful mother and have happy kids. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. That's just, I think a lot of moms need to hear that. Yeah. So I thank you so much for sharing your story yeah. with us and giving these insights. I know it'll be incredibly helpful to other moms. <laughs> yeah, I hope it was okay. Yes, it was great. Thank you so much. Oh, hi. If you'd like to be connected with Emily, find her on Instagram at Lattes and Lithium, where you can see and hear more of what it's like for her to be living life with a bipolar disorder. I'm so glad that you were able to join us today in this episode and learn more about bipolar disorders and Emily's experience. And hopefully this can help bring more compassion and empathy to other people you might know who've been experiencing a mental health condition while also navigating life as a new parent. If you haven't yet subscribed to the Mom and Mind podcast, please do go to the app where you listen to this podcast and hit the subscribe button so that you can get all of our episodes delivered directly to you. It is absolutely free of charge. And also your subscribing to the episode helps our podcast be found. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? 
My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests, too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.